are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. I'm Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is August 27th, 2022, and this is episode 188, 188 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to hear an interview with Anna Crowley Redding, who's written a, a wonderful new children's book about a 19th century lighthouse heroine. I have, whoop, there it is. <laughs> Happen to have a copy right here. Uh, so that's going to be uh, a lot of fun. And this is a, a very special episode because this is the first time in the history of this podcast which started more than three years ago, done about 200 episodes. This is the first time we're actually doing a video version of this episode along with an audio version. So I wanna welcome everyone who's listening, all our regular, listen, regular listeners, new listeners, and also everybody who's watching this episode on the US Lighthouse Society's YouTube channel. Uh, and at this point, let me uh, do something that, uh, I was thinking about, um, you see the background I have here. This is from my recent trip to England I, for the month of July, as you know, Michelle, I was, yep. first I was in England for a week and then I was in Ireland for a little more than three weeks with the US Lighthouse Society tour. The picture behind me right now, I know our listeners can't, <laughs> don't know what I'm talking about, but people who are watching can see uh, the background I have, which is the Folkestone Lighthouse, F-O-L-K, S-T-O-N-E, Folkestone Lighthouse on the southeast coast of England, which is uh, privately owned and has been converted into a champagne bar, which is oh, pretty wow. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, when I was there with, uh, with my friends uh, Jeremy and Babs Hawes, uh, it was closed. Uh, so we weren't able to have any champagne there, but it's, it's a beautiful uh, setting. There's a lot of uh, restaurants nearby and stuff. Um, so I thought I'd throw that up there as an interesting background to start out here, but I'm going to take that uh, background off so people can get the thrill of seeing my actual little study. Let me see here. Here we go. And there it is. What a thrill, huh? <laughs> it looks very well kept. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it's neater than it usually is because I knew I was going to be doing this today. So, uh, but what you see is pretty much my entire uh, study office. Uh, it's uh, it's not real big, but it does it does the job. And I uh, I've uh, put many 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 hours of work in in this place. I lived here for over twenty years now here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So. Uh, so anyway, uh, I've thought a long time about doing video uh, versions of some of the episodes of the podcast, and a couple of people actually on the Ireland tour, two different people talked to me about it. They said, you know, uh, nothing personal, but uh, I don't listen to the podcast because I need something visual, uh, and I understand that completely. You know, I to be honest, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, I prefer watching things, so I understand that completely. So that's uh, something I thought about, but uh, it's kind of prompted me to to move forward with doing video versions of some of the podcast episodes. We won't do it every week, but I'll do it uh, as often as possible. So, so what do you think, Michelle? Do you like doing a video version? I like it. I think it'll be you know a great addition. Maybe not doing all of them this way, but I think mm -hmm. it'd be great for people to be able to put a face to the voice. Um, yeah. I know some people yeah. like to do to multitask. They like to listen to podcasts while they do other things. But for other people, they just want to sit uh, at a computer 
uh, it helps to have something visual and it'll, it'll enable me to put things on the screen. Like when I interview somebody, um, I can uh, put on stills and things that kind of right. illustrate what they're talking about. So I'll be doing some of that too. So uh, I'm excited about it. I think it'll, it'll work out well. And again, we'll do it often, but not certainly not every week. So uh, we're starting to get late into the season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, our beautiful local lighthouse here on the New Hampshire seacoast. So how are you feeling about the tour season so far, Michelle? I'm very happy with the tour season. It's been it's been going great again with the scheduled private tours that we've been doing by advanced reservation. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy doing it. You know, we we have more time with visitors and they get to know us a little bit and they really enjoy it as well. So I want to say something about what's happening this this Saturday. OK, but I, I'm talking about uh, we're recording on August stay the 18th. Michelle, is that is that correct? I think so. Yeah, it's hard to keep track. But um, in a couple of days on Saturday is the International Light Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend. So when people hear this, that'll actually be passed. But I will be at uh, Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse with a, a group of uh, radio, uh, amateur radio operators or ham radio operators, as they're known. Um, and people will be at lighthouses all over the world broadcasting from lighthouses and lightships, International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend. So I know I've known about this for a long time, but I've never actually been around it when it was going on. So I hope to interview some of those people for the podcast uh, as they're talking to lighthouses and lightships all over the world and maybe hear some of those conversations as well. So that that should cool. be fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a unique uh, idea, I think, and I'm looking forward to it. So before we get to today's interview, Michelle, and I also want to say as far as the video versions, part of my thinking about this too is that uh, – uh, and that's in general with the audio versions of the podcast as well, trying to get away from having everything tightly scripted. Uh, I think it's uh, nice when we get to chat a little bit uh, early on in the podcast, I was pretty much scripting everything, but I yeah. think after 200 episodes, we can, we can wing it a little bit. We can go off the cuff a little bit. Yeah. But at this point, I, you are going to need to look at the script because I, I'm wondering if anything interesting has happened on this date lighthouse history. As a matter of fact, it has, Jeremy. Cockspur Lighthouse near Savannah, Georgia, was struck by a massive storm on August 27, 1881. The storm surge filled the lighthouse interior and destroyed the keeper's house. Twelve years later, two lighthouse keepers and two caretakers from nearby Fort Pulaski took refuge inside a stairway in the fort when the Great Hurricane of 1893 struck. I visited Cockspur Lighthouse last November. Uh, with Joel Kadoff of the Fort Pulaski National Monument and uh, interviewed him for the podcast, did a little video that's on the USLHS YouTube channel about it. And they were restoring the lighthouse at that time. There was scaffolding around it. I got to climb the scaffolding up the side of the tower, which was oh, pretty cool. Interesting. It was interesting. There's no, when you go up the top of the stairs in that lighthouse, there's no ladder from the watch room below the lantern up into the lantern. So there's ordinarily no way to get, there's no active light anymore there. But anyway, because I got to climb up the scaffolding, I got to go get up to the lantern level because otherwise oh. there's no way to do that. So, yeah. so that was fun. Um, so I think it's uh, time we should uh, move on to today's interview. Uh, so can you help me uh, tell people about our guests today, Michelle? Sure. 
Courage Like Kate, the true story of a girl lighthouse keeper is a new children's picture book biography based on the life of Kate Moore, a lighthouse keeper in the 19th century at Fairweather Island in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The book is written by Anna Crowley Redding and beautifully illustrated by Emily Sutton. Yeah, I'll it's just show it. a book that I think I'm going to add to my school library for oh, good. my kiddos to read. So Yeah, I just love that cover. I think it's a kind of a masterpiece. I, I, it is, isn't it? Uh, and since you mentioned it, Michelle, I'll just uh, cut in here for a moment just to congratulate you on your new teaching job, which you're, you're just starting and your picture has frozen. Whoop. There you are. <laughs> okay. My cat climbed on the computer. Uh-oh. Well, stuff happens. That's what happens when you do a, a video version of the podcast. Live, right, Jeremy? Yeah. Well, we're not quite live, but... No, uh, but but sort of. Um, so uh, as I was saying, you're just uh, starting a new teaching position. Uh, going to be a special ed case manager for eighth graders at Rochester Middle School. That is so fantastic. So congr- I know you've worked really hard to get to that that I point. Know. Congratulations in your new position. You're just just starting, uh, just about to start for the year, just right? About to start. Yeah. Next week, I have um, new teacher orientation and all kinds of things happening next mm-hmm. week. And we start the last week of August. So. Yeah. Fantastic. It's, it's so great. So uh, congratulations. So getting back to our guest, Anna Crowley Redding. Uh, Anna has wanted to be a writer since elementary school. Uh, when she wasn't writing, she was busy asking people lots of questions. Uh, this tendency led Anna to become an investigative TV reporter, and she received multiple Edward R. Morrow Awards and an Emmy Award and was recognized by the Associated Press. Anna's debut young adult nonfiction book, Google It, A History of Google, explored the extraordinary tale of the startup of one of the world's most innovative companies. Her other books include Elon Musk, A Mission to Save the World, and Black Hole Chasers, The Amazing True Story of an Astronomical Breakthrough. She's written several picture books for children, including Rescuing the Declaration of Independence, Chowder Rules, The True Story of an Epic Food Fight, and The Gravity Tree. Anna's work has been published in three languages. She and her two boys live near Portland, Maine. Courage Like Kate has just been released. I think uh, August 16th, I believe, was the official release date by Random House Studio. I had the pleasure of speaking with Anna recently, so let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking today with Anna Crowley Redding, who is the author of this wonderful new children's book I just happen to have next to me here, Courage Like Kate, The True Story of a Girl Lighthouse Keeper, which I really, really love. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Anna. I really appreciate it. I am so excited to be here with you. And I know that you um, are a lighthouse expert and love lighthouses. So I feel like I'm in great company. Well, I guess if you've been doing lighthouse stuff as long as I have, somebody will, will say you're an expert. And I've been doing it for like 40 years. So I appreciate you, you saying <laughs> yeah. that. I think you qualify. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations to you and Emily Sutton, the illustrator, on this new book. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And besides being an inspirational true story, it includes a lot of detail uh, about lighthouse keeping in the 19th century. And I, of course, I, I, I really appreciate that, that fact. I was wondering, were lighthouses something that you were interested in before you started this project? 
I think there's something that I'd always sort of had this romantic idea about, you know, and, and who doesn't, you know, when you're traveling along the coast and you see a lighthouse, you want to go and, and see it up close. And even better if it's still functioning and you can see it at night. Um, there is something romantic about it. I think it's the heroism involved, the guiding ships to safety, the sort of loneliness of it. Um, there's just something about it that's magnetic. Now, that said, I wasn't specifically researching lighthouses and then stumbled onto Kate's story. The way that I stumbled onto Kate's story is that, you know, I had been a reporter and, you know, reporters have this habit of, you know, checking the wires all the time back in the day when they were called wires. And, um, and so as smartphones have come on the scene, I still do that by checking news apps all the time. And so it was like the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep and I was reading news apps and I saw this news flash that the US Coast Guard had named a fast response Coast Guard cutter after Kate Moore and mm -hmm. that she had been a lighthouse keeper who started keeping the lighthouse at age 12 in the 1800s. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, if I had known this story when I was 12 years old, you know, what possibilities might I have imagined for myself as a girl, as a woman? And so mm -hmm. that's really what sort of drew me in. Yeah, well, that all makes a lot of sense. Uh, and before we continue, I just want to mention, I want to thank you for allowing this to be both an audio and video episode of the podcast. I meant to, to thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. And, uh, things are a little little different because in the past, whenever I've done any video, uh, like Zoom events and things like that for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, I always use fake backgrounds like a metal lighthouse or something. People for the, I think the very first time are getting to see my my messy little study here. So that's, uh, for, for some people, maybe that's, uh, I don't know if it's a thrill exactly, but I, I just, I, I'm not trying to make excuses messy. or anything. Well, it doesn't look messy. It looks thank busy. you. I strained it out a little little bit for this, I have to admit. So uh, before we talk more about the book, uh, I want to touch a little bit on your career before you became an author. And you just mentioned that you're a reporter, of course, of course. But um, I believe you went to Northeastern University in Boston. Is that I right? I did. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. I um, participated in their co-op program. And uh, my first uh, job in journalism was at New England Cable News. Mm -hmm. I was working under Tom Ellis, who was amazing, um, who passed away not too long ago, but he was a terrific mentor, really involved in, in teaching you. And, um, and so that's kind of where I started and then went to upstate New York, to Utica, mm -hmm. New York for my first on-air job, then Syracuse, and then Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and in Syracuse is really where I fell in love with investigative reporting and was trained in that and learned how to really dig through documents to find a story. And um, that was sort of what my main job was in, in Charlotte. Um, and, and it's part of what I still love to do in writing about true stories for young readers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we have a couple of things in common. First of all, I went to Emerson College in Boston. Oh, uh, yeah, I okay. took a class at Emerson with Rex trailers. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was teaching <laughs> yeah. when I was there. I I had a little contact with him, but I did not. His classes were always so solidly booked. There was a waiting list. And oh, I yeah. never actually took one of his. I majored in film and he was teaching uh, TV production but I never yes. got in one of his classes for people, people in the Boston area who are listening or watching might remember Rex trailer was the host of the kids show boomtown. 
Uh, yep. Yeah, he was quite a quite a local personality. But anyway, so I went and to he was, he was a yeah. terrific on camera coach, too, which is uh -huh. Northeastern had like major big J journalism chops, but they were sort of disinterested at the time in on camera performance. And the reality is, if you're going to be on television, you've got to be able to do both. So yeah. I was picking up that class with Rex trailer so I could learn from him exactly you know, how to do it on camera. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had you had some good, good mentors for sure in your in your yeah. early career. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Tom Ellis, uh, of course, uh, being uh, living in the Boston area for most of my life and being in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now I've watched NECN, New England Cable News a lot mm -hmm. over the years. And I, uh, I was going to say I grew up watching Tom Ellis. He probably came along when I was a teenager. So I, I spent a lot of my life seeing Tom Ellis on various Boston news channels. And uh, I saw your blog entry where you talked about how important he was in your life. Could you just want to say just a little bit more about that? It was really kind of a touching uh, blog entry you did on that. He was just so encouraging and he was hands on. So for people who don't know, he was like the big star. I think he worked at all of the networks in Boston at one point and he worked yeah. in York which in, you know, in, in broadcast news is the number one market. So if you make it to New York, I mean, you've hit the big time. Yeah. And, it, and yet he was so um, willing to share his time and expertise and knowledge. And so he taught me a lot. And one of the things that he taught me was if you're feeling nervous before you do something, don't let that intimidate you. Don't let that be a message of you're not good enough or you're not there yet. In fact, if you're feeling nervous, it's because you're about to do some of your very best work. And I have thought about that in just about every single time that I feel nervous. I think about what he said, and it's really helped me reach for things that normally maybe I would have reacted to that and said, you know what, that doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do that yet. Mm -hmm. um, and his advice really helped me to sort of blast through that wall. And, you know, as I began writing for young readers, I realized at first I thought, what is the big deal? I've been writing for a long time for TV news. Like it, it can't be that difficult. And anyone who's written books for kids is dying laughing right now because it is that <laughs> difficult and more. Yeah. And which I had to learn the hard way. And, and then you're sending your work out and you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And I sent Tom uh, an email and said, you know, I'm trying to do this thing. I'm trying to become a children's author. I've always wanted to do it since I was a little girl, but it's just like rejection city population Anna. And he sent me this email back that more or less said, my dear Anna, is there anything, is there anything that you have dreamed of that you've worked hard at and not accomplished? Mm -hmm. And you can do this too. And I, it was just exactly what I needed to hear from a person I trusted and, and knew, believed in me. Mm -hmm. And it kept me going so that I didn't quit and I didn't give up. And Courage Like Kate is my seventh published book. Mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate his influence in my life so much. And it, it reminds me, you know, to really take the time to be that present for other people who are, you know, on this journey as well in a different spot of how can I help them? How can I support them? How can I encourage them? Because if not for him, I probably would have quit. Yeah. 
Well, I love hearing all of that. It's so great to hear he was such a supportive person. And anybody who lives in the has lived in the Boston area in the last maybe 50-ish years certainly remembers Tom Ellis. He was, like yeah. you said, he was like the dean of Boston news anchors. Uh, and what he said about nervousness, I think, is absolutely true. And it's something I, I think about <laughs> pretty often when I lecture and so forth. So, um, but uh, just to, to skip ahead now, um, what made you decide to shift gears from being involved in TV news to going to uh, writing books for young people? Well, it's something that I've always wanted to do, but I didn't necessarily know how to get started or how to begin. And, you know, I, then I had children of my own and I remember uh, specifically driving them to the library because we went to story time and all of that. We were coming home and I was saying to my firstborn, to Crowley, I was saying, you know what, honey, you can be anything you want. You can like, you dream it, you can do it. And it was almost like there was like a knock at the door inside, like, hello, remember me? <laughs> because I think you had this habit of um, whether you're a parent or when you hit middle age of thinking, okay, I've, I've done my thing, life is over. And of course, it's ridiculous, you know, um, at any point, whether it's 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's never too late to follow a dream. Um, but so I just like heard this dream calling of, you know, you've always wanted to write for kids you're telling your son to follow his dream and you're not following this one, maybe get busy. So mm -hmm. I did. And I went to a conference um, for writing for, for young readers in Charlotte and realized that I was like standing at the bottom of Mount Everest and had a lot to learn about how to apply my craft to writing for children. But slowly, slowly I did it. And, um, it's been a really wonderful um, journey. I mean, it's, it's challenged me in so many ways, personally, creatively, intellectually. Um, and it, it's taken me to all kinds of places that I, I could never have imagined. So I've really enjoyed it and would encourage anyone who wants to do it. Yes, it is hard, but mm -hmm. you too are, are capable of doing this. Yeah. I like what you said in general about pursuing your dream. It's never too late. And uh, I had a lot of different jobs in my life. I quit, uh, let's say, quote, real job about uh, over 20 years ago to get into lighthouses full time. And the job I have now with the U.S. Lighthouse Society, I started about three years ago. So I've been telling people I found my dream job at retirement age. So I feel, yeah, feel very, very lucky, really. So it is important to to go after and, your dream. And, and sometimes you can't imagine it, you know in your twenties, if somebody said, you're going to go into lighthouses full time, you would have been like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know? So you yeah. can't it's a process. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It is very much an ongoing process and who knows where I'll end up. Maybe I'll do something totally different in the future. And you, same with you, you know, you know, you just, you follow uh, your heart basically, I think. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, follow your curiosity. Uh, that yeah. has actually been the best parenting advice I've ever received is, you know, pay attention to what your children are curious about and, and give them access to more of that. Mm -hmm. And that's true for grownups too. pay attention to what you're curious about and, and get yourself more access to that thing. Sounds good to me. So a little bit more about Kate Moore, you said uh, already a bit about what drew you to her story. Um, and uh, lighthouse buffs, a lot of, you know, a lot of our 
listeners, viewers, obviously, are Lighthouse buffs, and they might be somewhat familiar with Kate Moore. She's one of uh, a fairly small number of well-known women keepers. But there are some others like Ida Lewis in Newport, Rhode mm -hmm. Island, and Kate Walker in New York, and a couple on the West Coast, who are probably better known, I would say. Kate Moore, I feel, has not gotten her uh, the attention she uh, merits or deserves. Is that, is that something that entered into your thinking that you wanted to bring more attention to Kate Moore? Without question. I mean, number one, there isn't a standalone book just for her. Mm -hmm. um, until now. And um, to me, it was the age at which she took over. And when I went to inspect her lighthouse journal, which um, is now in the, the sort of protected history collection of the Bridgeport Library, um, it, what was fascinating about reading her words is how matter of fact she was. So it, this log includes writings from keepers who came after her as well. And the other keepers are so dramatic, so dramatic. And Kate is, I mean, just the facts, man. I mean, mm -hmm. throughout the thing. And to me, that said a lot about her, about her level of dedication, commitment, how serious she was as a person, um, how serious that job was. Um, and, and how courageous she was. She, yeah. she stayed absolutely focused on the task at hand. So I think all of that. And then also when I was down there doing research, I learned that, um, and this was in 2014, the summer of 2014, when I really started going down um, this road. And so I went to um, Black Rock and Fairweather. And I, that's when I learned that um, the children who had survived um, the Sandy Hook shooting had adopted her lighthouse as part of their healing. Um, and because one of their uh, friends who was slain, Ben Wheeler, loved lighthouses. And so they took care of Kate Moore's lighthouse because they were working under the slogan, helping is healing, which I thought was amazing. And so I felt like I eventually went to their um, school and, and worked with them on how to research documents and how to understand the story and, and how inspiring it is to see other people who have faced difficult things and, and to draw our courage from other people's examples. And I just, there were so many highs and lows in actually writing this book, but I kept coming back to that. I want to make good on that promise to those kids that I will deliver a book about their hero. And mm -hmm. so that was really important to me. Yeah. I'm really glad, glad you brought that up, that you tied that into uh, the Ben's Lighthouse and uh mm -hmm. Newtown. Uh, several years ago, during one of the annual Ben's Lighthouse Festivals, they invited me down to speak uh, there. And it was a great experience. They're just uh, such wonderful people. So wonderful, uh, it, a it, wonderful organization yeah. and a, a wonderful mission. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Very moving. Yes, very much so. And I, I was really happy to see you, you talk about that in the kind of the epilogue, the, the end of the, the book a bit. So it's a, it's a perfect tie-in. So um, you, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the research collection at the Bridgeport Public Library. 
Uh, yes. You probably did a lot of research there with that that log and, and uh, other things they have there. Uh, did you do research in other places as well? Yes. So I did a lot of research um, looking at the national records as well. So things like, you know, these old maps so that I could look and see because there are a couple of, I think, you know, a couple of historic articles about her and um, some of them are, are like outrageous and, and you can't even believe it's true. And so I wanted to look at as much primary source information as possible to basically prove or disprove these articles. And really the only thing that one of them got wrong was her age. She was not like 300 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've gone, I've tried to figure that out. I think uh, if the, the article you're talking about, if it was correct, she would have been something like 108 at the time of the uh, article. Yeah. 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 So eventually I found her obituary and her last will and testament. So figured out that she lived to age 86. Mm -hmm. So that helped. And so I was really analyzing to through um, ancestry, through the online resource, all of the census records um, where she shows up and where her parents show up. And then looking at the payroll, the congressional records to see what she was paid and when she finally received checks in her own name, which is in her fifties. <laughs> so it was just, you know, grasping at every shred of paper that mm -hmm. you could find to try to piece together her story and, and her life. So it was a bit of a, um, I, oftentimes I felt like a, like a private detective uh, mm -hmm. digging through all of this information. And there was a, uh, in one of the articles, it said that that she had, I think it was a Rembrandt in her living room. And so I was able to find the painting, which is in Europe and, and to call them and, and find, did, did she in fact, and she did not, it was a copy, which was quite common, mm -hmm. but just chasing all of that down was actually a very enjoyable process. Yeah. Well, I can imagine. And I, I know that she was said to be she was self-taught, but apparently very uh, intelligent and, and had a large library in her house as well as many yes. paintings. So she must yes. have been a, a very interesting person. Um, and I, I know that your, your book uh, pretty much concentrates on her as a young girl learning to be a lighthouse keeper and kind of mm -hmm. skips ahead, uh, you know, to when she gets the actual appointment towards the end. But um, why did you decide to, to approach it that way to, to make it about her as a, as a young girl? Because of the audience, it's for young readers. And so I want them to connect to her in such a visceral way. And so really, and this was interesting because in writing this story, it's so fascinating that she was a lighthouse keeper. It's so fascinating that she's living out on this island. Like there were so many things that are fascinating about her. And so it, it took a long time for me to arrive at the heart of this story. And the heart of this story really is that at a time when women were expected to be seen sometimes and almost never heard, Mm -hmm. that she was doing something so heroic in spite of that while wearing pants, by the way. And that's the part that I want the young readers to take from this is, yes, there were these limitations and there were these expectations of who she would be because she was a girl, but she did what she wanted to do, what she had to do, what she was compelled to do anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's really the message that I want them to take from 
from her life is having that kind of courage um, back to what we were saying about Tom Ellis. You know, when you feel that nervousness or fear going forward anyway. Mm -hmm. And so starting with her as a young girl was important because small children reading this will relate to her immediately. They'll be able to see themselves in Kate's story and Kate's story and who they are. Yeah. Well, I think your instinct was very good on that. I think it was a great decision. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, in reading the book, I noticed you use some pretty big words. Uh, oh, yeah. Just for instance, I put I made a note here of a, a, a passage. Uh, she knew the lighthouse's staircase was torturous. Uh, she knew the wee hours were tedious. Now, those are not necessarily words, you know, torturous, tedious that you would see in a children's picture book. Uh, so I guess a two part question. What do you see as the target age for the book? And secondly, why did you decide to use that sort of vocabulary in the book? The target target age for the book is, I think, four to eight. Why did I use that word, those words? Because they are melodious and they communicate the meaning in the context of the sentence and with the illustrations. And I guess with my own children, I, um, I try to speak as naturally as possible when I'm trying to communicate anything. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for young children, a lot of times we avoid particularly descriptive words in, um, in favor of generic ones that are more commonly used. And I guess I don't subscribe to that. And luckily my editor never said a word about it. So <laughs> that's good, yeah. Excellent, excellent. I love it. You know, I certainly didn't mean any sort of criticism. I think it's, I think it's no, really good. No. And I think for, you know, if kids are really into the story, which I think they will be, uh, they will learn uh, some vocabulary along with the other uh, things they learn from it. So I, I, I applaud you for that. I um, hope so. And, and mm -hmm. I found too that, you know, when children are exposed to different words and a, a big variety of words at a young age, you know, their capacity for using a, a greater variety of words increases exponentially. And so I'm hoping, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I'm hoping that it will inspire children to, to use those words and words like it to describe anything they're trying to communicate. Mm hmm. I just popped into my head how I, when I was really small, my mother read Winnie the Pooh books to me, mm -hmm. and those were pretty advanced for a three or four year old or whatever I was. And I think that yeah. really had an effect on me. It made me want to read more. And it gave me, I think, a bigger vocabulary than most little kids. <laughs> yes. so, so I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. Um, now, uh, I want to talk a bit about the illustrations in the book. Uh, correct yes. me if I'm wrong. I think Courage Like Kate is the first time you've worked with uh, Emily Sutton, the illustrator. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. It is. I've been a big Emily fan for a long time. Um, she, her work is incredible. And for anyone who isn't familiar with it, the, the layering, the texture, the color, it, it's bright. It's, um, I, it's a little bit of, um, it has the, the sort of whimsy of impressionism, but the vibrancy of Matisse. And mm -hmm. I, I just am crazy about her work. I really am. Yeah. Um, I, let me hold it over here. Uh, I love the, really love the cover. I mean, I love the illustrations in general, but I think the cover is kind of a masterpiece. I really do. It's I just, think so you know, too. And it's she, she, that's hand lettering that she did. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's a font of her invention and it's so cool. Right. 
Um, but the, everything about that cover, the, uh, you know, the composition and the color and the, just the, the sort of inspiring, uh, you know, look of it is just absolutely perfect. I saw on your blog, you, uh, actually have like a conversation with Emily about developing the cover. Do you want to comment on that a little bit about how the, how the cover came about? Uh, well, I, not necessarily about how the cover, uh, came about though. I think that. I think she tried it a couple of different ways. And mm -hmm. I think the the beam of light reaching out across the cover is just so striking and yes. really communicates the purpose of the book, the purpose of Kate's life, what mm -hmm. she was trying to do. And it feels like that light is um, reaching us, um, which I think is so cool. Um, one of the things that was interesting is normally in the process of creating children's books, believe it or not, normally the author is over here and the illustrator is over here and there's almost no communication. Yeah. In this case, that was not the case because um, I had collected as much visual reference material as I could for her on mm -hmm. um, the lighthouse itself, on what the lamps would have been like, um, the flora and fauna, what... Um, what the the city would have looked like during that time um we gathered there's a scene where she's going to the post office what did the post office look like all that kind of stuff so she and i actually were in communication um and it was really neat to see her process mm -hmm. evolve um starting from black and white sketches and just watching her add um color and, and and specifically when you see Kate had to walk on these wooden boards across a marsh to get to the lighthouse at night from the keeper's house and yeah. often the island would be flooded and there'd be four feet of water sloshing under her feet which you just can imagine and so there was some discussion back and forth of that spread of, is it dangerous enough yet <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so it was interesting to sort of witness that and um Emily, interestingly enough, lives in Yorkshire in, in the UK. And so it was interesting to see her sort of fresh approach and the details that she picked up on about, you know, this landscape that some of us who, who live in the area are used to, um, mm -hmm. but that she's looking at with fresh new eyes. And I think she brings that to these illustrations and really highlights uh, life in New England in a way that um, is really special. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she did just a tremendous job. Uh, and the illustrations, as I think you just said, are, are very vivid, very colorful. Uh, do you, could you say uh, what sort of media does she use? It seems to be sort of mixed media. A mixed um, media, but she does it on, you know, in a lot of illustrations are done digital, digitally now. Oh, okay. And hers are not. She's used. Yeah. She's, she's full old school. I thought so. Yeah. 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 Um, which is pretty neat. Yeah, I love the uh, the accu accuracy of some of the well, all the illustrations, but the ones that show uh, Kate tending the lamps and it shows mm -hmm. the the reflectors. Um, you know, that's something I don't remember ever seeing in a children's book before. It's uh, pre Fresnel lenses and lighthouses. You had yeah. the multiple. I don't know if it's okay. Is it okay for me to sh to show this? Oh, absolutely. Yes, the, please. Uh, Kate tending the the lamps with the 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 old parabolic reflectors that were used before yeah. the days of uh, 
of uh, Fresnel lenses. So, uh, you know, that's some some great detail in there. I think it's great. That well, and that was like super important to me because, um, and to Emily as well, because it was so intense what she had to do. And even just arriving at the front steps of the lighthouse, never mind going up the spiral steps with whale oil in the crook of your elbow. And then, then you get to the top of the steps and you've got to climb a ladder a drop down ladder to get into the lantern room. I mean, we just wanted to show the reality of what she did every night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's perfect. You did, did a great job. Um, to sh shift gears a little bit, let's uh, talk about one of your other books. Okay. Uh, okay. You wrote a book called rescuing the declaration of independence, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Which has a lighthouse connection. Uh, yes. Listeners who are lighthouse history buffs, as a lot of them are, <laughs> will know the name Stephen Pleasanton, who's often seen as kind of a villain in lighthouse a history, villain. because he was mm -hmm. the he was the Treasury uh, of Department official who was in charge of our lighthouses for a few decades in the first half of the the eighteen hundreds, and it seemed like his the main part of his job was to save money and to not build very good lighthouses because uh, they were all yeah. about about not spending much money. Uh, but he, uh, he, he was very involved in something that you, you wrote that book about, which is uh, super interesting. Uh, could you say a little bit about uh, what Pleasanton did, the subject of that book? Well, I, I should give Kate more credit because I discovered his story while doing research. Oh, her. okay. Yes. So I was at the Lighthouse Museum here in Maine, and, mm -hmm. and they had a display talking about the time that Stephen Pleasanton worked for the State Department, which at that time was, you know, right by the White House. Yeah. And it was during the War of 1812. And in 1814, he gets a message from his boss saying the British are coming, remove the records. And the records they're talking about are the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and all of our founding documents, uh, George Washington's journals, congressional records, et cetera. And so he has to, and he is like a lowly clerk, and he has got to figure out how to pack them up, get them out of town, where to put them, and all of this stuff. So the story is about his efforts to save those, those documents, which was a story I had never heard before, ever. And um, he's got to ride them out of town on wagons, and the first attempt is um, not good enough. He's got to move them again in the middle of the night. But the only reason that we're able to go and see them today is because of his efforts, because mm -hmm. his office was burned to the ground and those documents yeah. would have either been burned with it or stolen and taken as a prize back to, mm -hmm. to London. Yeah. So maybe he's a hero after all. So that's, that's yeah. good to hear. <laughs> yes. the, the museum you're referring to, I think, is the main Lighthouse Museum in Rockland. Is that, that yes. correct? Yeah, yes. you, you yes. saw that. So I was putting a plug for, for them, which has the oh, yeah. um, largest collection of uh, Lighthouse Fresnel lenses in the country. And if people are coming to Maine to see lighthouses, they also need to go to the main Lighthouse Museum in Rockland. Um, well, and it's also where I was able to gather some of that visual reference material um, for the artist, you know, what would um, boats have looked like then that she would have been using, you know, all of those kind of details, um, you know, some of them were found there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, I understand you do appearances at schools and libraries, right? Yes. Uh, yes. What, what do you talk about with the kids? 
It really depends on the group, but sometimes we talk about um, Kate Moore and I'll read them one of the historic articles that's so outrageous. And then I'll give them a clipboard full of primary source material and say, is it true or not? Mm -hmm. And so they've got to try their hand at becoming a detective to decide and to see how these things are proven or disproven. And so it, it does two things. One, it shows that writing is really um, a contact sport. And that two, um, in this age of sort of what is the truth even, it actually can be nailed down. And this is how we do it. And so that's one thing um, that I do. And sometimes it's writing prompts or writing workshops. Um, but it's all kind of built around um, encouraging and empowering students um, to explore their world through writing and through research. Mm -hmm. I love that writing is a contact sport. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> I really might have is. to steal that. I might have to steal that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you live in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, near Portland. Yes. Near yes. Uh, one of the most, maybe I would say the most visited lighthouse in the world, the Portland Headlight with well yes. over a million, million visitors a year. I don't think there's any other lighthouse that can compete with that. It's incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's but so, so special. It is. It is. It's very special. And you've got a bunch of other lighthouses around there too. So it's a, a great location for somebody. I know you're maybe don't consider yourself a lighthouse buff or aficionado or maybe, well, let me ask you that. Do you consider yourself a lighthouse aficionado at this point or buff? I, yes. Yes. Yeah? I just, I love them. Um, mm -hmm. I really do. And I love the stories, um, the stories they inspire and the, and the stories that, you know, the true stories that have happened there. Um, I just love them. Yeah. And so my, my literary agent, um, Amy Joan Paquette, who's also a, a writer within her own right and, and excellent. We keep saying we're going to have a writing retreat at a lighthouse and, and go mm -hmm. find one to stay at for a few days. So that's kind of our dream to, to go and do that. Well, I might be able to help with that with recommendations for a lighthouse where oh, you can yeah. stay if, if I if you need any help finding a, a good place. Uh, yes, uh, we do. <laughs> so uh, you again, you live near Portland. Is there a certain geographic geographic radius for your appearances where you're where you can go? I really uh, go all over the place. It just mm -hmm. depends on the timing of it and um, sort of the demands of other deadlines. But um, and then, of course, too, with virtual appearances, I've been able to, uh, you know, uh, I was doing a virtual visit in Zurich this year in mm -hmm. Switzerland. So, wow. um, yeah, though, if, if there's one coming up in Sicily, I volunteer to come in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it might be a little warm there lately, but still. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sounds great to me. Uh, so I saw uh, on your website, AnnaCrowleyReading.com, right? Do I have yes. that right? AnnaCrowleyReading.com, uh, that you do live talks about writing on Friday afternoons. Uh, on uh, Clubhouse. Yeah, Clubhouse. during the school year. I should put that in there during mm -hmm. the school year um, on Clubhouse. Yes. Okay. I'm sure I should know, but I'm not personally familiar with Clubhouse. Uh, so Clubhouse is an app and it's basically like a digital drop-in meeting room for lack of a better um, mm -hmm. explanation. If you can imagine going to a conference and everyone at the conference goes off into meeting rooms to talk about a particular topic, this is sort of the digital version of that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it allows you to meet up with other people. Um, for example, you can meet up with um, Lighthouse fans from all over the world. 
mm -hmm. uh, to talk about lighthouses. So are you doing text chatting or are you, is it more like Zoom or you're actually seeing each other? It, it's that? kind of like a live um, conversation. So it's audio. Um, oh, okay. It, it's kind of like part podcast, part Q&A, part, you know, whatever you want it to be. But it's a digital audio drop in thing. So you can ask questions. It's highly interactive. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of fun. Interesting. Uh, so again, people can go to your website, AnnaCrowleyReading.com and read more about that and read more about obviously your other books and your appearances and so forth. Uh, and um, let me ask you if you're might be willing to share a little bit, uh, wondering what you're working on. And of course, I'm wondering if there's any more lighthouse projects in the pipeline. Um, right now, I don't have any more lighthouse projects in the pipeline. Um, but that's a good, interesting question to think about. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Maybe that will inspire more Lighthouse books. Um, right now, I am working on a chapter book series called The Danger Files. And that is for upper elementary um, age students. And it's sort of the first one is focused on disasters. And it's sort of this rip-roaring narrative, like take the Titanic, for example. And so you're following around a nine-year-old on the ship who really existed. And um, you're kind of going along in the action, except that you're getting these danger clues along the way. And they're all based on science, technology, engineering, and math or STEM. And so you're able to kind of crunch the numbers and figure out why the situation's dangerous, what is going wrong and why. And so it gives the reader, the young reader, some analytical information as they're reading the narrative so they can analyze um, even before the main character knows what's going on, they have a sense of where it's headed and why. Um, so that one is coming out, I think, in 2024. Um, and then I'm also right now writing a young adult memoir. And that is the true story, um, my true story of being um, sent to boarding school in Italy when I was 16. And um, so I'm working on that right now, too. Wow. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I have one final question for you. Okay. And this one's for bonus points. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. Hope, hope you got your number two pencil sharpened and ready. Yes. <laughs> what was your favorite thing about working on Courage Like Kate? I think my favorite thing about that beyond digging through all the, the, the source material to, to kind of find her story is that I felt connected to her. Uh, throughout the whole process. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like having her live with you mm -hmm. um, and trying to, to listen to her tell me what happened. And that was a, a sort of a cool feeling. I love that. I love that. And uh, I think she was talking to you. I, I think yeah. uh, that's, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, whether people see it literally or figuratively or whatever, but uh, her, her voice is very much, much heard in the book. And uh, again, I thank you for doing the book and congratulate you on uh, such a beautiful book. We're actually talking thank on you. what is, you're very welcome. What is today's date? August 9th, we're speaking on. And the book is coming out officially a week from when we're recording this, but people are going to be hearing this a little bit later, a little, a little bit after. Yeah. It comes out. So it will be available by the time people hear and Absolutely. see this. 
And um, it will also be available in an audio version as well, um, which is sometimes kind of fun to have the audio version too by an amazing uh, voice actor, um, Arisha Connor. And um, so I, I think that I, I encourage people to, to get the book and, and I hope that they and their young readers will be inspired. I think Kate Moore was just an unbelievable person. And, you know, it's very difficult to look back in history and write stories about women because the historical record, you know, um, is just not focused on them. And so mm -hmm. it's been really thrilling to sort of add her story, you know, back to the record. Yeah. Well, you've done that. And, uh, the uh, Kate Moore thanks you and all of us Lighthouse Buffs thank you. So uh, congratulations again on the wonderful book and thank you so much Anna Crowley, Crowley Redding for spending this time with me today. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I loved our <laughs> conversation. <laughs> The book, Courage Like Kate, The True Story of a Girl Lighthouse Keeper, is available from Amazon and other online booksellers. Courage Like Kate is a great addition to uh, the list of lighthouse-related children's books. Uh, I don't have any kids or grandkids, but I've got a pretty big collection of lighthouse uh, kids' books, which I, I think is a great uh, genre. There's a lot of good ones. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking with Anna. Uh, this is actually the second week in a row we're featuring uh, children's book authors. We did uh, Rhonda and David Armitage, who I interviewed in England last week. They uh, did the book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Lunch, and a whole bunch of sequels. Their books are very different in style from, from Anna's, but uh, I, I love them both, and I, I reckon, recommend uh, both their books to uh, our listeners and viewers. Before we end this episode, I want to mention something interesting happening in Massachusetts. I saw this in uh, our uh, Lighthouse News of the Week, the U.S. Lighthouse Society's Lighthouse News of the Week. And I should mention Ralph Krugler, uh, my uh, co-worker for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, has been uh, doing those uh, weekly news uh, reports lately. Uh, and uh, the uh, state of Massachusetts, the, the uh, state's Office of Travel and Tourism has announced a new Massachusetts lighthouse trail. That's right. The new Massachusetts lighthouse trail stretches from Cape Ann and down the North Shore to Boston Harbor and the South Shore and out to Cape Cod in the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. And you can download a PDF of the Massachusetts Lighthouse Trail Guide at visitma.com slash lighthouse trail. That's visitma.com slash lighthouse trail. So, Michelle, uh, this is the part of the podcast where we usually tell our listeners to be sure to check out everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society has to offer at uslhs.org. Today, I just want to add a little bit kind of on a, a personal level. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I just returned from the U.S. Lighthouse Society's 23-day tour. They called it the Ultimate Ireland Tour. Uh, it was fantastic. We saw I'm not even sure the number of lighthouses. I know it was over 50, uh, some of them distant, but a lot of them up close and personal. A lot, also lots of other stuff, uh, castles and uh, all kinds of beautiful scenery. Ireland is so oh, beautiful. Amazing. Yeah, it, amazing. They, they're not kidding when they say there's something like 40 shades of green in, in Ireland. I think there's a lot more than that. It's just so green and so, so pretty. Uh, a, a few years ago, I took part in the, the society's tour in uh, the southeastern Scotland and down the east coast of England. That was also fantastic. 
Sometimes I help run some of the domestic tours. I'll be co-running a, a tour in Northern Maine this October, starts October 8th. Uh, and I'll be co-running one in Northern Lake Michigan next summer. Uh, all the info on the tours is at uslhs.org. Just click on tours. I hope our listeners and viewers will check out uh, those tours because uh, as you know, Michelle, lighthouses are beautiful. I don't need to tell people that, but also they, they kind of open a window or maybe a door to uh, all kinds of beautiful places and to learning about all kinds of history. They absolutely do. Um, and, and even being at Portsmouth Harbor Light every week, I still feel like I'm learning something new about the history of the lighthouse or the keepers. And mm -hmm. every time I go, you know, see a new lighthouse, there's always something new to learn. So, yeah, absolutely. And at Portsmouth Harbor Light, like a lot of lighthouses, we're just completely surrounded by history. You look around right. there, there's the forts and other lighthouses and the Isles of Shoals, interesting group of islands. The city of Portsmouth has in the fort right next to us, Fort Constitution. There's yeah. so much history there. And so the lighthouses are kind of a window into all of that. But they're, they're also just just beautiful, fun places to visit. So if you're listening to this podcast today, please share word of this podcast on social media and with your friends. The more listeners we get, the better. If you listen with Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Absolutely. So, Michelle, do you have a quote today? I do, Jeremy. The poet and artist Susie Kassam once wrote, quote, never stop wandering into wonder, end quote. I really like that quote. It's beautiful. Yeah, oh, I love that quote, too. So on next week's episode of Lighthearted, we're going to listen to a conversation with Ben Trask. He's a historian who's writing a new book on the lighthouses of southeastern Virginia. And there's some very interesting aspects to that, uh, African-American keepers and other interesting topics. Uh, so uh, I want to mention something before we close. We, meaning Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, the organization that you and I are very involved with here in New Hampshire, Michelle, uh, we're holding a five lighthouse cruise on September 24th. And that's one of our big fundraisers of the year. We uh, did two sunset cruises in June with Granite State Whale Watch out of Rye, New Hampshire. And we're doing this five lighthouse cruise on September 24th. Uh, 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. All the information is on our website, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. Uh, it's always a good time, and uh, we do a raffle on board and have a lot of fun. So great, I, great cruise. Yeah, yeah, and uh, always great working with Granite State Whale Watch. They're an excellent company. So I hope we'll see some of our listeners on there. So uh, at this point, as always, to our regular listeners and to our new ones, Thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. <laughs>